Thanks very much, Steve. I think if, if I'd been told I was going to have to follow you too, I might have thought, <laughs> thought twice about saying yes. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons enough for feeling humble when you come and talk in rooms like this about subjects like terrorism. Uh, as the son of a Methodist minister, I'm going to make sure I have a little lectern here in front of me. Uh, I mean, the, one reason is that looking around the room, just some of the faces that I know, I know that there are people here who know so much, indeed so much more than I do about this subject. So I'm genuinely humbled about talking about terrorism in this room. I'm humbled about talking about terrorism in the city I was born in, but from my accent you can tell I didn't grow up in because what's happened in this city and in Northern Ireland over the last 40 years, indeed longer, means that you have to have a humility about offering any kind of interpretations of why terrorism emerges, why it goes on, why it ends, and how we should respond. Um, there's another reason for humility, which is that one of my friends who works in this area did a computation about the amount of material that's been written on terrorism, particularly since 9-11, uh, and came up with a disturbing statistic that a book on terrorism in the English language is published about once every six hours, um, which is dispiriting if you've just written one yourself. So, um, <clears throat> With all of those caveats, I'll launch into talking about the rather grim subject which Steve asked me to speak about, which is terrorism, how should we respond? First, I'll say something about why I think this is a topic that all of us should think about, even though it's one which none of us on our own can do a decisive amount about. I mean, even the fantastically famous, rich, committed people behind me, you know, the capacity to do much about huge world problems, even if you're very powerful and famous, is very small. Okay. And I think one way of looking at that is, is to recognise that the world's most sustained attempt to do something about terrorism, the war on terror since 2001, easily the most protracted, expansive, expensive, intense effort to do something about getting rid of terrorism, has not only not got rid of terrorism, but if you look at the figures, they've got conspicuously worse. It's one of the many things about studying political history is you're always humbled by how poor humans are at doing things. Okay, the average death toll from terrorism in the years before 9-11 was 109 deaths a month globally, 109 deaths a month. In the six years after 9-11, during the war on terror, that figure rose from 109 deaths a month to 158 deaths a month. If you exclude terrorism in Afghanistan and Iraq, if you include terrorism in Afghanistan and Iraq, the figure rises from 109 deaths a month to 529 deaths per month. Okay. I think another reason why, despite all of this, two reasons why, despite all of this, we should think about it. No, three reasons why we should think about it, given the room and the building I'm in. There is one, obviously, if, if you believe that somehow God's purpose in the world is something which you should be listening to and thinking about, then not responding to something as grievous as terrorism and the violence which it involves would be negligent. The second thing is that in the city that we live in, I think there are aspects of what is known, what... Um, Donald Rumsfeld once called the known knowns about the world. There are aspects of what we know we know which it is worth reflecting on because I think if we forget the things that we've learnt painfully then probably the future will be even worse than, than we'll otherwise make it. And the third thing is a personal dimension. Most people in this room I would guess have some kind of personal linkage to aspects of things that have involved terrorism, to people who've suffered from it, for example, to things that you've lived through and seen. Um, my mother Belfast Methodist that she was. When I started writing about the IRA, she once looked forlornly, she often looked forlornly at me, but she once looked particularly forlornly at me and said, said, said Richard, why don't you write about nice people? Um, and <laughs> she'd have been horrified to know that I moved on from writing about the IRA to writing about Islamists and the Bader-Meinhof group. 
But it's really her fault, and the reason is because I was, I, my mother was from, from Belfast, as I say, I was born here, and, and, and although I grew up in England, I used to come on holiday every year to Northern Ireland. And I remember the first time I became interested in terrorism was when I was about seven years old, it would have been, summer of 1971, and we were staying in a caravan up on the north coast, and it's the summer of internment being introduced in Northern Ireland. And I discovered there were soldiers on the beach because McGilligan had been opened up. And age seven, I thought of joining the army, and as a little kid sometimes do, and I recognised that summer that maybe joining the army might have greater dangers in it, and I'd romantically thought through playing with soldiers and said to my father, you know, do you think this will all be over by the time I grow up and join the army? To which he wisely said, this brings us back to Omer, he, he, he wisely said, you know, I think this will go on for a very long time here in Northern Ireland, Richard. He said, um, he said, I don't think I'll see the end of it, but you just might. And my father died in the month of the Omer bomb. Uh, so he didn't see the end of it. But I think that it is one of the crucial things that we have in Northern Ireland, that we have that unusual perspective of having been through a lengthy terrorist experience, which, while it's not ended, has substantially fizzled out. Um, and I think that that's one of the reasons that we can think particularly interestingly about it. So terrorism, how should we respond? Um, as the son of a Methodist minister, I should have three points, but the book has, the book has seven main arguments in it. And I, at the risk of, um, of meaning that you don't have to go and buy it and read it, I'm going to go through some of them and then uh, we can have questions and, and discuss it. The first aspect of how we should respond to terrorism, regrettably, uh, is, is learn to live with it. Because terrorist campaigns, if you look historically across the world, most terrorist groups don't last very, very long at all. Most terrorist groups statistically die within a very, very short time. But while particular terrorist campaigns, even the durable ones of an organisation such as the Provisional IRA in Ireland, tend to fizzle out, terrorism as such as a phenomenon is going to be long outliving anyone in this room and the children of anyone in this room. Okay? And if you look at the UK's experience through history, it tells a a, a, a neat way of encapsulating that. Um, a very long history of terrorism, political violence before the Northern Ireland Troubles of the last 40 years. That awful experience itself. At the end, it seemed, of the Northern Ireland Troubles, there's then still violence, which, as we've seen recently, carries on. Occasionally fatal violence, frequently lethal violence from people who are not accommodated to the peace of the new century. And just as the UK thought, finally, Irish terrorism was going away, you got the emergence of a very new kind of terrorism, replacing it and becoming more anxious. I mean, designed with the wonderful timing that the Almighty has, the, the very month when the Provisional IRA finally decided they were going to end their campaign formally in July 2005 was the very month of the 7-7 bombings which brought terrorism to London in an emphatic way. Okay. Even the experience, therefore, of a state which has seen it, its most famous terrorism come to an end experiences an ongoing way. Now, this has implications, and it has implications for what um, some days after that concert there and the atrocities of 9-11, President Bush inaugurated with the war on terror. I don't think there's anything, people often mock the war on terror, I don't think there's anything inherently daft about declaring war on terror or terrorists. Terrorists think that they're at war with states and with the rest of us, and I don't think there's anything wrong with recognising that's what it is. I think the way that that war on terror was set up by President Bush is something which would carry on until you got rid of all terrorist groups of global reach, is setting up a goal that you simply can't achieve. And that's self-defeating. And there's no doubt that jihadists took considerable comfort from this proclamation. If your enemy says, I'm going to carry on until I do something that they know you can't do, it's a propaganda gift. What you should do is recognise that in terms of terrorism, you have two different kinds of ways of learning to live with it. One is containing the atrocity level 
of the violence which is carried on. You're not going to get rid of it, but you can minimise or you can maximise it. And the other is recognising that particular campaigns and movements will in time come to an end and be patient about enduring until they do. I mean, one of the lessons of terrorist history throughout much of the world is that states will last far, far longer, generally, than their terrorist opponents. States tend to last far, far longer than their terrorist opponents for a variety of reasons, many of them quite banal. It's actually very much more difficult to run a non-state terrorist group than it is to carry on running a state. It's actually much more difficult after a campaign goes on for a year or two to get the kind of headlines, momentum and so forth that you get in the early years because people become habituated to it. States become much better at dealing with it and it's much more difficult to get the headlines. Friends of mine who work in the BBC in London commented lamenting this on the fact that after a while stories regarding the violence in Northern Ireland, for example, increasingly became stories you could not get people interested in because people had built into the fabric of their lives that every so often something hideous would happen in relation to Irish violence. And the same thing has happened now with jihadist violence. Okay. If you had had an ongoing series of spectacular atrocities of the 9-11 kind, of course it would have been different, but you haven't. And even in the United States, it's become something where it's much more habitual. So learn to live with it, and probably we can do so in the confidence that terrorist opponents in particular groups will wither before we do, if we have patience. Second point is this, how is terrorism, how should we respond? Where possible, address the root causes and the problems which underlie it. Now, this is a contentious thing, and there are those who argue exactly the reverse. I mean, a very famous um, Harvard lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, wrote a controversial book arguing we should never attend to the causes of terrorism, because if you attend to the causes of terrorism, you're suggesting that there's something legitimate in the problems that generate the violence, and perhaps even there's a legitimacy in the violence. Some people would even think that the kind of Manichaean structure of good and evil between the powerful states and the weak that is characterised on what we've just seen there would indicate a certain sense that, well, maybe, you know, as one reasonably well-known journalist in Northern Ireland put it to me after 9-11, the Americans had it coming. There's a sense that some people do think that this kind of thing will play to... I don't think that's true. I think attending to the causes of terrorism and recognising them and trying to address them where possible is important for two reasons. The first is that there are some moments in history when a particular movement is going to fizzle out and the way of making sure that it does most effectively is trying to uproot those things which make very normal and ordinary people do atrocious and awful things. And the second thing is that if you attend to the causes of terrorism carefully, you can make sure that you're aiming at the right target. I mean, it's very commonly thought, for example, that there's a strong connection globally between poverty and terrorism. Actually, when you look at the correlation statistically between people who carry out terrorist acts and poverty and between people who carry out terrorist acts and lack of education. It's a very weak correlation indeed. Terrorists globally tend to be slightly better off and slightly better educated than the people in the community they come from. Now, there are all sorts of reasons for dealing with poverty in itself, because it's an awful injustice, but getting rid of terrorism isn't one of them. Okay, so I think looking at the causes of terrorism is something which is important. And from time to time, you get a situation, as I think we broadly did in Northern Ireland during the last 15 years, when it's kind of ripe for fizzling out, And if you're prepared to seize that moment, you can make a huge difference. The man who was the chief of staff of Tony Blair's regime, Jonathan Powell, who did most of the negotiating with with the IRA when the Good Friday Agreement was produced, said to me, he said, the reason that people should keep lines of channel open to terrorist groups, however ghastly those groups are, is because there will come a moment when you'll find out that they're about to say, OK, we've got to end this and find some other way forward. 
And when that happens, you've got to be ready to seize it. And you won't know that moment's there unless you're in contact with them. And you won't know that moment's there unless you know why they're doing what they're doing. Now, one feature of this, which people sometimes find distressing when I try and point it out, but I think it's, it's absolutely true, is that the relative rationality and normality and non-psychopathology of most terrorists is actually a good thing if you want it to end. Okay, if you know, there's a normal cycle of atrocities is that some campaign emerges and quite rightly people are outraged by the awfulness of what's happened and so we say well these evil fanatics they must not be like us they must be abnormal people they must be psychopaths in order to do this most research on terrorists has demonstrated that the vast majority of terrorist practitioners are utterly normal psychologically and rational people and that's actually a good thing because it means that if as is likely to be the case you can persuade people in the longer term during the campaign as it goes on year after year and doesn't achieve what it's supposed to achieve you can say look actually this isn't doing what you thought it was going to do there are other ways that you might that's a more hopeful thing than if you're dealing with a group of people who are who are psychopaths there's something which i'm hesitant to say given i know there's a, at least one uh, queen's academic in the room but i'll say it anyway the number of people when i was interviewing people for my ira book the number of people I was interviewing who'd been involved in the IRA, who'd done very, very violent and, in many cases, appalling things. The number of people from the IRA whom I interviewed who were psychopaths was no higher a proportion than the number of psychopaths in my department at the university. <laughs> <laughs> now, there are, there are two possible explanations for that, okay? And I'm going to go for the one which says that they're mostly normal in the IRA, okay? <laughs> Now, it doesn't mean at all that they've not done atrocious things. What it means is that people who are normal, who've done, that, that awful, awful things are done by very normal people. That awful things are done by very normal people. I mean, my, my, this is a very different context, but the, one of my tutors at Oxford when I was a student had been a tank gunner in the war. And during one of the conversations we had about history, he said that the way that his tank had worked was he didn't really see, he was just told to sort of point in a certain direction and fire repeatedly. But he calculated he'd probably killed well over 200 Germans. This is the most sweet, gentle, medieval historian of a fellow. But in certain circumstances, very normal, ordinary people will do absolutely awful things. That doesn't mean those things are any less awful, but it does mean we've got to try and think about how those things have come about, why they've come about. Unless you believe that suddenly, for no particularly obvious reason, in 1972, for example, in Northern Ireland, or in the 1990s in Algeria, there was a mass outburst of psychopathology. The argument I'm offering that it's normal people in awful circumstances doing ill-advised and awful and unjustifiable things means that you, you have to attend to that, that, that normality as part of the explanation. That means that when the moment comes when you can say, actually, it's not going in the direction you thought it was, go in another direction. There's an opportunity to end it. Third point, so first learn to live with it. Second, where possible address root causes. Third point, the thing which never seems to get learnt by states in response to terrorist crises, which is avoid an over-militarisation of response. Avoid an over-militarisation of response. When terrorist crisis happens, you normally find that states will think that they should behave like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And there's good reasons for that, because the people in the state think, we want to see you protect us. This awful, wicked thing, if you imagine, if you, if you imagine the Twin Towers there, and this awful, wicked thing happens. We've got to show that we can deal with this in a muscular way. We want someone to be punished for it. We want someone to be hit for this, and we want to make sure we know you're protecting it. You're much more likely to get re-elected as the President of the United States if you do that. Even this President. If there's an awful bomb tonight in Chicago, Barack Obama will become much more like George Bush than people think he will, okay? Because someone will say, Mr. President... Unless you act like Arnold Schwarzenegger here, you're never going to get re-elected, and history is going to despise you. But the fact of the matter is that overwhelmingly, if you look at the history of military, military attempts to deal with terrorism, it's not a particularly effective way of dealing with it. 
much more frequently has ambiguous results. It contains, yes, and sometimes it does have an effect in limiting aspects of some terrorist groups, but it tends also quite frequently to act as a further catalyst to generating the very thing which you want to subvert. The French in Algeria, Israel with the Palestinians, the early 1970s in this city and in Northern Ireland, the United States and Iraq, Again and again, this has been the case. It's not that there's no role for the military, and it's certainly not that I'm blaming soldiers, because actually some of the lectures I give to people in, in the American military, which occasionally I do now, these people are the most extraordinarily honest, brave, subtle, and decent people. And they, of all people, want to know what's going to work and what's not going to work, because it's their lives that are going to be put on the line if they go to Helmand province the following month. But a military re response to terrorism, which soldiers repeatedly will say themselves, is, tends not to be the best first weapon. Fourth point is that the use, of, the use of intelligence and the gathering of intelligence and information and processing it is a much, much better way of dealing with terrorism than the military in most cases. Normally when you see a huge problem that's arisen, the failure of intelligence plays a part in it. Between when the Soviets left Afghanistan and 9-11 happened, 9-11 having been planned in Afghanistan, there was virtually no intelligence presence by the CIA in Afghanistan at all. At all. Didn't know it was coming. Okay. In the run-up to the Iraq war, the way in which intelligence was to some degree absent and in other degrees played up in dubious ways was very, very damaging. And one of the things which is the case again and again in campaigns that have been, had a ceiling put on them of terrorist violence is that intelligence before an event makes it much more likely that you can contain and therefore produce a stalemate in that organisation. We saw this in this city. When I was doing my book on the IRA, the police and the IRA gave me about the same figure of the number of planned IRA attacks which came off. And it's a minority... And one of the main reasons for that was that if I was trying to kill you and then just before I turned into the road where you live, a Land Rover apparently accidentally turns up in the way. It's not accidental at all. It's because one of my mates has been turned and the information's come. And that is the best way of dealing with this. And that involves moral grubbiness too because the way in which people are turned and become agents is not pretty. Okay, what you do is you have some film of someone doing something morally disgusting and say this either goes to your mates and you know where you're going to end up or you start giving us information and you turn them and you put pressure on you put pressure on them. You get, but that, of, the, of the choice between that and some hideousness happening, you choose that. I mean, the informer has a very bad name in Irish history as in other histories, but without informers and agents, there'd be far more people maimed and dead. <laughs> and intelligence is the main primary weapon in dealing with, with terrorism effectively. Fifth thing is... Again, which, one with, which people don't tend to want to hear after, after atrocities have been carried out. But it's respect the orthodox legal frameworks and the democratically established rule of law. Respect the orthodox legal frameworks and the democratically established rule of law. Why? Partly because there's a tendency after terrorist attacks begin, understandably, to think these people have done such wicked things with no recognition of morality, with no adherence to proper process, that why should we obey the normal rules of process when we're trying to deal with them? There's a tendency to try and get people to, to, to do things in terms of getting information which maybe go beyond the law in terms of detention, in terms of uh, Guantanamo Bay, in terms of Abu Ghraib, in terms of threatening to or actually beating people and getting confessions out of them. And it tends not to work. It tends not to work, partly because the terrorist opponents have always said you're a wicked, evil state and have to be seen as the great Satan. Then look at, you're rounding up whole loads of people, many of them innocent, and bashing them over the head or starving them of food or pretending to drop them out of a helicopter. And they say, look, we told you. And everyone looks and says, yeah, that's actually what it looks like, particularly those people who've been rounded up and then come out. Okay. A second thing is that torture, for example, tends not to produce the information you want. 
it, it, we, we know from studies that psychologists have done with people. I mean, if, if, if you torture someone, they'll tell you anything in the end just because they want to stop the torture. You tend not to get the information. And it can backfire. I use a Northern Irish example. In, September, in October 1974, the IRA atrociously left bombs, as we know, in pubs in Guildford in the south of England. Five people were killed. No warning bombs, actually. Five people were killed. Many people were injured, some of them horrifically. Absolutely atrocious act. Okay. In the wake of that, not surprisingly, there was such outrage, we must get these bombers. And as we now know, the wrong four people were imprisoned for those bombings for a long time. Now, if you say Guildford bombs, if you say Guildford four, what people will now think of, not without some reason, is the four people who are wrongly convicted and put in prison for a very long time. And it's right that that should be remembered because it's an awful thing. I would best that even in a room like this, which is a very knowledgeable room, the chances of people being able to name one of the Guildford Four, the people who are, had confessions beaten out of them or stuck in jail wrongly, is greater than the chance of people being able to name the actual Guildford Four who planted the bombs. Those names are not a mystery. I mean, they're in my book on the IRA. And I guess that actually either of those sets of four would be more famous than the names of the five people who were killed. So what actually happened was that one of the most callous, atrocious acts of terrorism in the 1970s by the IRA became a propaganda boost to the IRA. Look at this British state. British justice, look. They find the nearest Irish people and beat something out of them. Instead of remembering the victims, the perpetrators, what's been remembered is people who is British injustice to Irish people. And what's been forgotten is the victims and the callous people who carried it out. Learn to live with it. Where possible, address root causes. Avoid an over-militarisation of response. Concentrate on intelligence. Respect the orthodox legal frameworks and the democratically established rule of law. I'm trying to do seven points in the time it would take a Methodist minister to get through three. Hang on. Six <laughs> points. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's my father was the preacher, so I, I, it's him you should have been listening to. The sixth, sixth point, ensure a coordination of response, coordination of technological, financial, security, military policing efforts of different wings of the same state and of different states fighting against the same enemy. One of the fascinating things, here's another university example, one of the fascinating things about different wings of the state fighting against terrorism is that just as in a university, university setting, different departments who have many of the same shared interests will compete with each other for resources. So too, if you're looking at the different wings that are fighting against terrorism, no, Mr. President, give me the money, not to that lot. And people fight it out, they don't co cooperate, they don't collaborate. Often the policies of one bit of the state that's fighting terrorism go against the policies of the other. You see this quite commonly, and if it weren't so serious, quite comically, in the fact that quite often different wings of the same state have different agents in the same small section of a movement, and sometimes one of them will allow one of the agents to kill one of the other agents, and they don't know... Okay, the lack of coordination is hugely problematic. Lack of coordination internationally is one of the great problems that happened after the 9-11 atrocities and the war on terror, because the manner of the war on terror being justified and pursued, particularly, I think, in Iraq, made it much more difficult for America to liaise with those other states which were going to be colluding with you in the fight against terrorism. Because people, for example, in many Muslim countries thought the one thing we can't do if we want to remain in power is carry on getting on with these Americans because of the things they're perceivably doing against Muslim countries. The PR was very bad. Coordination is hugely important. A huge resource for, I mean, I say this to some of my students who are looking for good topics to do on politics in relation to Northern Ireland, a fantastic resource for researching this, if you, if you doubt my point, is to look at the website of something like the Billy Wright inquiry into the killing of Mr. Wright in 1997 in, in, in the Mays prison, because the, the website of the inquiry has all of the evidences, people give evidences on there day after day. And look at the ways in which different wings of the same state fighting against the same organisation do or do not pass information on to each other about what's actually happening. It's not that I'm not, I'm not criticising them, actually. You know, insofar as I'm involved in the Northern Ireland 
history of terrorism versus the state. My relatives were trying to find the people I was interviewing while I was interviewing them rather than the other way around. Okay? So I mean, I, I, I'm utterly sympathetic to those fighting against terrorism. What I want them to do is to do it effectively and in the ways that they're going to be working. And one of the things that doesn't happen sufficiently is that people collaborate uh, with their allies both between different states and in the same state. Fifth thing, maintain a public credibility of response. Maintain a public credibility of response when the state is dealing with it and when we as Citizens as newspaper, editorialists, as TV presenters are responding to it. Why? Because the credibility of the state's response against terrorism is one of the best weapons against largely incredible claims by terrorist groups themselves. Okay. Most of what most terrorist groups that I've studied have thought to be the case is demonstrably implausible. I mean, Osama bin Laden is absolutely not credible as an Islamic theologian. He's not credible as a reviewer of world history. He's not credible in his predictions of what's likely to happen in the future. And his central goals are almost entirely unrealisable. Okay. And I think the thing is, therefore, what you don't want to do is to come out with statements which are implausible against them and play into their hands. If you come out and say somehow it's a battle between good and evil, America is utterly good and these people who are against us are utterly evil, and then the only Americans you meet are people who accidentally shoot up a wedding in the wrong context and say, sorry, I didn't mean that, and then fly off somewhere else. It's going to look incredible. If you say there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and then you go in and say, oops, we couldn't find any, and you say, well, you know, this man was behind 9-11 and you persuade many of your people that they were behind 9-11 and find out then that he wasn't at all, as you knew all along. If you say, we've got to get rid of Saddam Hussein because he's an awful man and someone says, well, why did you prop him up during the 1980s and why did the CIA put him in power in the first place then? Okay, you lose credibility. And there are two groups with whom you lose credibility at your peril. One is the constituency of people who may or may not give breathing space to terrorists to fight against you and to support them. And the other, even more important in some ways, is the credibility within your own population. Now, I'll finish with this point and give two Northern Irish examples, one relating to republicanism and one relating to, 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 to unionism. The republican one is this. 1976 to 1981, as everyone in this room knows, there was a war over whether the IRA prisoners in the jails were criminals and therefore illegitimate, as Margaret Thatcher and her regime wanted to claim in the 79-81 period, or as the IRA claimed, were political and therefore legitimate. And the battle raged and it culminated in hunger strike and, and, and much, 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 much polarisation. Now, actually, as we know, repeatedly, the majority of people during the IRA's campaign in the nationalist community repeatedly tended to vote against the IRA's representatives when they were given the chance to do so. Most people were not in the nationalist community supportive of the IRA. But they did know that the IRA, however much they loathed what they did, were political. And they did know that this wasn't a mass outbreak of criminality because they lived down the street from the people who were doing it. The people who were doing it were the sons of the people who were around the corner from them, and they knew that. And if it was a choice between saying this man who's starving himself to death is a criminal, or this, as Mrs. Thatcher says, or this man is political, they might even, as they did in fact in 1981, vote for Bobby Sands. And there was a way of losing credibility which could have been gained. There was a perfectly obvious argument at the time, which was, yes, it's political, but not all politics is legitimate. Hitler was political. It's a great strap line for the sun. They could have done it straight on. Okay, would have gained credibility. Meanwhile, on the other side, one of the great problems in the peace process in more recent years in Northern Ireland was that many unionists didn't trust, and I don't blame them, what the British government was saying to them. One of the reasons was because the British government was frequently lying to them. Okay? First time I interviewed Reverend Paisley, as you know, it, despite his bombastic public presence, is per personable and courteous and affable and quite amusing on a one-to-one -one basis. And, he, he, was, he was chatting to me about the first time I interviewed him was around the time that there'd been this debate, were the British government in talks with the IRA or not? And the government said, no, we're not. 
And the IRA said, yes, you are. And the government said, no, we're not. And, the government said, and then the Sinn Féin published these documents demonstrating fairly clearly that they had been in negotiations with the British government. And Paisley said to me, uh, he said, you know, the, the, the truth is I trust more now the IRA's version of this than I do the British government. Something that is repugnant to me. He put it like that. But, <laughs> but he did. The IRA's most famous opponent trusted Sinn Féin to tell him what his own government were doing more than he did. Now, therefore, now I've said that, that terrorists are rational, so too are most voters in Northern Ireland. Okay? No wonder you don't trust the government if you trust their, your most hated enemy against them rather than against you rather than you do them. So the, th the things I think we should do in terms of terrorism, there's very little, certainly, that anyone like me writing obscure books can do about it, but I do think that we do owe it to ourselves to think carefully about how to respond to terrorism, partly because the really big variable that we have is when we respond wrongly to this crisis. Okay, the, the, terrorism is an awful, awful thing, but the statistics of likelihood of dying from it are very, very small. I mean, two, to pick one statistic, 2005, if you're an American in 2005, the chances of your being killed by terrorist acts are less than one in five million. Okay. So it's considerably less likely than you'll be struck by lightning. Okay? So it's not the big problem. What the big problem is, is that terrorist violence, one of the few things it does do is prompt states to do things which do make a huge difference to the way in which politics happened and set things burning. It may already be the case that the Chicago dirty bomber has been enraged by something which has happened in Iraq. It may be too late. Okay. And the reason we need to operate with restraint is because unless we do that, we magnify a problem which, though awful, is not going to destroy the world unless we prompt it to do so. The reason it's particularly dangerous now is that the likelihood of some terrorist attack of much grander scale, even than 9-11, is, is because the combination of a group of terrorists who would like to carry out much larger levels of violence than has been customary in the past and the availability of nuclear material means that it's not impossible during the next 10, 15 years that some species of nuclear terrorist attack will occur. If that happens, the 21st century will be even worse than the 20th, and that's quite an achievement. Okay. So I think if we're going to respond properly to it, if, someone, if there is some atrocity tonight in Chicago and the president, in the unlikely event that he rings us all up and says, what should we do? The seven things you should do are learn to live with it where possible address root causes, avoid an over-militarization of response, recognize that intelligence gathering and processing is the main weapon, respect the orthodox legal frameworks, democratically established rule of law, coordinate the response within the state between different agencies and between different states, and maintain a strong public credibility of response. All of those seven points have been initially and or significantly broken and transgressed during the war on terror. All of them. And I think it's with damaging effect. I don't think there's any likelihood that a university professor is going to change government's minds on this, but I do think it's worth our while reflecting on these points and the kind of dynamics that lie behind them if we're going to think about how effectively to respond to terrorism. Thank you.